Uh, our reading today is from John 1, verses 19 to 34. Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confess freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him then, who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way of, for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been sent to question him asked, why then do you, um, do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one who you, you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he, he was before me. I, I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the son of God. Thank you so much, Andy, for reading for us. Good job. Preparation is everything. Uh, you ask any gardener or farmer and they will tell you, you don't just stick plants in the ground. You've got to prepare the ground if you want them to thrive and flourish. You know, you hear about a new high-rise block going up in the town center. You know for the first few months, you're not going to see anything because they're just going to be preparing those foundations. During the first lockdown, I decided I was going to decorate our downstairs. And you know what it's like. You just want to get on with slapping color on the walls, but you've got to prepare those surfaces or it's just going to come straight off. And we're in John's gospel. And last week, we looked at this amazing event at the center of history, God becoming a man, the word becoming flesh, Jesus Christ stepping onto the stage of history as a man. And this week, we're talking about the preparation behind that event. Uh, we're focusing on a man called John the Baptist. Uh, we call him John the Baptist to distinguish him from John the Disciple, who wrote the gospel that we're uh, looking through at the moment. Um, but he's an amazing man, very interesting character. His ministry was to prepare the way for the Messiah, to prepare the ground for Jesus to step in and begin his earthly ministry. In the other Gospels, we can read about his father, Zechariah, who was the high priest. We can read about his mother, who was called Elizabeth, and uh, was the cousin of Mary, who was Jesus' mother. There's this lovely event uh, that Luke records in Luke chapter 1, where Elizabeth and Mary meet. And Elizabeth says that she felt her baby, John the Baptist, leap for joy within her heart as the Holy Spirit interacted with him, even at that early stage as she met Mary carrying the Messiah. Wonderful stories. 
Mark 1 tells us that John's, John's ministry uh, was a bit unusual. He lived out in the wilderness. He wore rough clothes and lived off eating insects and honey. And, not, and, he, and he preached quite a hard-hitting message, telling people that they needed to turn from their sins. And crowds flocked to him, and he baptized them in the River Jordan. And uh, John is telling us in the passage that Andy just read to us that the crowds came to him and that the religious leaders sent out uh, people to find out what was going on. And they asked John, who are you? And he quotes the prophet Isaiah from Isaiah 40 verse 3 at them and says, I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way, prepare the way for the Lord. Like all the Old Testament prophets before him, John was pointing at the Messiah to come. So let's just pause there. Jesus is the center of everything. We need to nurture a biblical worldview. That's why it's so important that you hear preaching regularly, that you're opening up the Bible for yourself. The secular worldview that we grew up with and that surrounds us at best assigns Jesus to the sidelines, makes him an add-on. But a biblical worldview places him at the center of everything. His life, death, and resurrection is the event that everything before then was leading up to and everything after then leads on from, is a consequence of. Because we grew up with this distorted worldview, we tend to get stuck on the things that are meant to point to Jesus rather than stuck on Jesus. You know, it's a bit like a dog. I don't know if you've noticed, some dogs are very good at following where you point. You point off, some of them even go where you point. But others of them, you point, all they're interested in is your hand. It's like you're, you're trying to say over there, and they're like, what have you got in your hand? That's all they're fascinated with. And we can be like that with the things that are meant to point to Jesus. The Old Testament prophets all pointed to Jesus, and John was the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, Jesus says about him. One of the reasons John wrote his gospel is to try and correct this uh, error that had come into the early church, where some were so fascinated with John the Baptist, you can read about some of them in Acts chapter 19. And that's why John is so keen to record John the Baptist plainly saying, I am not the Messiah. We can make the same mistakes with other things. You know, for example, creation is meant to point to Jesus and point to the Creator. And you meet people, and understandably, they're fascinated with creation. They look at an amazing view or amazing wildlife, and they are spiritually moved. Something stirs within them. But they don't look at where creation is pointing. They become fascinated with the thing rather than the one thing, the one that it's pointing to. You know, the church is meant to point to Jesus, and yet it's possible to get stuck with the church, that it's the community life of the church that we love, or the social action of the church, or believe it or not, the structures and hierarchy of the church, or the music of the church, or the buildings of the church. All those things are meaningless if you don't follow where they are pointing. Preachers. And worship leaders are meant to point to Jesus, but sometimes we, they, can fall into the trap of making our ministry and our platform the big thing. 
John the Baptist says this amazing thing a couple of chapters later in 3.20 where he says, he must increase, I must decrease. If you have any kind of platform in your ministry, don't shrink from your ministry if it's from God, but make this your prayer. Let him increase, let me decrease. John the Baptist says two really important things about Jesus. He says that he's the Lamb of God who is going to take away the sins of the world. And he says that he's the one who's going to baptize us with the Holy Spirit. He is saying that Jesus is going to break down the wall that separates us from our Father God. And then he says that through that broken gap, he is going to pour out the life of God into our souls that we were always meant to receive. So in verse 29, John points at Jesus and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You know, lambs keep on appearing in the Bible through the Old Testament. They keep on appearing. They have a really important part to play. For example, right at the beginning, Genesis 22, you can read about Abraham, the father of the Jews, the promise bearer, the one whom God makes this amazing promise that he's going to have a people of his own. Um, You read in Genesis 22, there's Abraham, and there's his son Isaac, and they're climbing Mount Moriah to make a sacrifice. And when they get to the top, Isaac, the son, says rather nervously, perhaps, to his father, we've got the wood, and we've got the fire, but where's the lamb? And Abraham speaks out this amazing prophetic utterance. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering my son. Abraham knows if God doesn't provide the lamb, Isaac dies. And God's promise to have a people ends then and there. And you can read it. It's very dramatic. Genesis 22, as the dagger is raised above Isaac, suddenly God speaks and stays Abraham's hand and a ram is found and the ram dies and Isaac lives 400 years later, as the people of God are bought out of, about to be bought out of slavery in Egypt, the angel of death is moving through Egypt in judgment. And in each household, terribly, the firstborn son dies, except in the households of God's people, where in obedience to God, they've placed the blood of a lamb on the doorposts and the lintel. And over those households, the angel of death, the angel of judgment passes. Down through the ages, the Jews sacrificed lambs as part of their worship uh, in the temple. Thousands and thousands of lambs die. And the people of God know that these lambs don't actually have power to take away sin. But they know they're pointing to something, or those with faith know that they're pointing to something. And they have faith that it's the thing that they're pointing to which is going to take away their sin. And finally, this is why this is such a dramatic point in history, when John the Baptist points at Jesus and says, there's the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world. That's the one everything has been pointing to. And three years later, as Passover lambs are prepared for slaughter in the temple in Jerusalem, Jesus is about to die, about to die. The perfect sacrifice once And for all, you can read about that in Hebrews 10. The curse of God's judgment is lifted from all who place their trust in what he has done. 
You know, John's call to repentance was unpopular, but it's a vital part of the, rep- of the preparation. Who wants to be told that they're sinful? No wonder Herod eventually has John the Baptist beheaded. Sin is still not a popular concept today. We tend to think that the breakthrough, the watershed moment in someone coming to faith is when they realize that God exists. But uh, actually, alongside that is the watershed moment where we realize that sin exists. Lots of people believe in God, but it's only when they realize that there is sin separating us from God that they start looking for a savior. You know, if you don't believe in sickness, you don't go looking for a doctor. If you don't believe in sin, you don't go looking for a savior. Sin should be at the center of how we understand everything that's wrong in the world. From our own petty shortfalls to global issues like uh, racial injustice and environmental catastrophe arising out of human greed. If we have no concept of sin, we settle for partial solutions. Things like education and politics and medicine. Really, really important things. And down through the ages, Christians have been at the center of all of them. But if it's only when you see the deeper issue of sin against the holy God behind those things that you realize you can't fix it. You need a savior. Now, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But John tells us in this passage, he's also the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And this is so important. Sin is what cut us off from God, which suffocated the life out of us. It's why Romans, 10, Romans 6, 23 says the wages of sin is death. Jesus takes that blockage away. But then he causes the river of life to flow again from the presence of God into our very souls. He restores that life in all its fullness, which John will tell us about a bit later on, John 10.10. So uh, John says in verse 23, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John uh, saw the Holy Spirit come on Jesus as a dove. You can read about it in Matthew 3. Jesus received the Holy Spirit. John is telling you he saw Jesus receive the Holy Spirit. This is really important. It's telling us that as a man on earth, Jesus operated through the power of the Holy Spirit in the same way that we can. It's through the Holy Spirit coming upon him. That's how Jesus heard his father's voice. That's how Jesus knew that the father loved him and was so secure in his relationship with the father. That's how Jesus grew in obedience. That's how Jesus resisted temptation. That's how Jesus performed his miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit that John saw come upon him. But John says, I saw the the Spirit come upon him and now I know he's going to pour him out. He's going to baptize us in the Holy Spirit. This pouring out of the Holy Spirit is a huge theme in John's gospel. We're going to come across it again and again in the weeks and months to come. So in in chapter 3, verse 5, you see Jesus saying to someone, um, you've got to be born of water, repentance, and of the Spirit. You're going to receive power and life from God if you're going to follow him as Lord. In chapter 4, he meets the woman by the well, doesn't he? And he says, you're going to have those who follow me, that this well will spring up to them, to eternal life. And he tells her, you, if you're going to worship, it's got to be in spirit and in truth. 
in chapter 7. He stands in the temple and makes this amazing statement. He cries out in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink, and out of them rivers of living water will flow. And John tells us plainly, by this he meant the Spirit. 14 verse 16, Jesus is preparing the disciples for these terrible events that are going to surround his departure and his separation from them. And he comforts them by saying, I'm going to ask the Father and he's going to send you the advocate, the comforter, who will help you and be with you forever. And then finally, in the last chapter, John 20, 21, as Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, is standing with his disciples. He's saying, the Father has sent me, now I'm sending you. And it says, with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The gospel isn't just that our sins can be forgiven, but that we can enter into new life in Jesus, fruitful and vibrant New life in him. The great writer and preacher, Greg Haslam, who sadly died last year, um, says, you know, what's the evidence of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life? What does it look like? And we tend to think of dramatic examples, and they they are all evidence of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. But he says the primary evidence, the core evidence, is a cry and a confession The cry is Abba, Father. Uh, Paul tells us that in Romans 8.15. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And it's a confession. And that confession, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12.3, is Jesus is Lord. That ultimate act of surrender saying, you are in charge, not me, and I'm going to follow you. You can only follow Jesus fruitfully and uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. This confession, Jesus is Lord, this submission, this yielding, this following that is at the core of discipleship, experiencing the leading the revealing, the empowering that God pours into us. It's all the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, preparation is vital. But you've got to follow through. Don't stop with the preparation. John the Baptist's declarations about Jesus and what he was going to do are wonderful. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So has he taken your sin away? Or are you still carrying it? He's the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. So is the life of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit flowing through you. If your answer is no, or I'm not sure, I'm going to say those are good answers. (laughs) Those are good answers because they mean you're looking. They mean you're aware, you're conscious. Of course, I want you to say yes. The answer is yes. And hallelujah for the many of you watching or listening who are saying yes. But if you're not sure, or if I want to say it can be, it can be. That's the whole point of what John is proclaiming here. Do you know, I'm not going to say a lot more. 
because we're at the start of a series, just as John is at the beginning, John the Gospel writer is at the beginning of his Gospel. He's pointing. Are you going to start following where he's pointing? Or are you just going to stay fascinated with the hand? That's the issue. This could be the start of a really exciting journey for you. I pray that it is. You know, in John 1.40, just a few verses later than where we've got to today, it tells us that two of John the Baptist's disciples started following Jesus. And it names one of them as Andrew. And it doesn't name the other one. And we don't know for sure, but it's quite likely it's because the other one is John, who is writing the gospel. He doesn't write name himself. He just calls himself the disciple who Jesus loves later on when he refers to himself. John is saying, I used to follow John the Baptist. And then I saw where John the Baptist was pointing. And I went where he was pointing. Can you see that path this morning opening up in front of you? Well, this morning, today, (laughs) you might be watching this at some other point in the day, habit. Today, I just want to say to you, stick with us. We're going on this journey together. Some of us are starting, some of us are going deeper, but it's the same path that we're on. John's wonderful declaration, his wonderful ministry In the wilderness of this world, prepare the way of the Lord. In the desert, perhaps the desert of your circumstances, make straight a highway for our God. God bless you. It's really exciting.